Yo, what's up? It's your girl. <laughs> DJ Narc, what's going on? Okay, okay, let's talk. There's so much to talk about, right? Should we start with the fact that Robert Pattinson makes you feel amazing and lousy at the same time? <laughs> is it comforting to know there's someone that talented and that good looking in the world, or is it depressing? If we're looking at it from Pattinson's point of view, we're probably going to say depressing. <laughs> and that's probably the most maddening part, is to have someone be so blessed with looks, talent, and most importantly, luck, and still live on that edge where he's fully aware that this could be his last job, he's fully aware that this could be the last hit, he's fully aware that this could be the last day of his life, not to be morbid, right? But when you're living that far out on the edge, where even though you're really established, you have enormous star power, you have made multi-millions and continue to make, probably in the billions, with the work that you've done, to still maintain that level of authenticity, integrity, and awareness of what time is like, how fickle time is, how fickle certain industries are, how fickle luck can be. To be completely aware of that and to be able to live within that anxiety and still create great work, it, I think is what creates such a genuine person and creates such a genuine presence that pulls people in. So a lot of what we're hearing right now about the Batman is like, okay, it's about the vulnerability, which I've addressed. Yes, the vulnerability is amazing. It really does add a dimension to all of these superhero movies that we haven't seen before. You know, the closest we got to liking some unconventional version of a superhero was when Captain America showed up in a black suit with a beard. You know, very much like a nod to like Muslim resistance and a lot of like Muslim resistance, Muslim culture, Muslim resistance to interventionist Western policies have now become trendy, have now become fashion, right? Things that we associated for a very long time with people who are fighting for their country, fighting for their religion, things that were like super taboo that we were not allowed to be proud of now have been adopted en masse by the West. Uh, and it ties directly to the invasion of Iraq, right? So this is something that we know from Roman times as well. When the empire absorbed farther and farther out regions of the world, the trends, the styles, the fashions of the people that were being taken over, they were incorporated into Roman culture. So we know that this is a thing and we know that acquisition brings this sort of integration, but seeing Captain America in a black getup and a beard was, it was, it was a little bit shocking. It was gratifying, you know, because it, it, it did, at, in the Muslim soul at least, at least, it did give us like a little bit of like, oh, okay, so we're not crazy. Like when you guys also decide to go rogue, you do the same shit we do. Or you're, or you're copying our shit. Either way, it doesn't matter. The point being, you get what we mean. When the establishment one day decides to move the goalposts and now all of a sudden you go from being an ally to an ally, a freedom fighter, a, you know, whatever, to a mujahideen, to a terrorist, 
because the policies and the policy makers have changed and that goalpost moved without you doing a thing, that is a very confusing thing to navigate. And then when we see Western media kind of, you know, prop that up and say, okay, well, we, when, when the goalposts are moved for us as well, you know, one day the Marvel Universe decided that these Avengers were terrorists. And, and then that was it. And then what did they do? How did they react? Well, Captain America leaves. He refuses to go along with authority. He comes back in this black getup and this beard and you're like, aha, you know? And there is that nod to Muslim culture, to Muslim resistance. But within the universe itself, within the Marvel Universe itself, it was a really interesting take because you don't get to see anyone go against the stereotypical, you know, vision of what a superhero is. The closest you get is this kind of hokey, almost uh, lampooning version of a hero with Iron Man. You know, but his motivations are still the same as every other superhero, right? He just wants to do good. He just wants to save things. And no matter how much Pattinson hits you over the head with that in the Batman, Funnily enough, you're not really that interested. Like, oh, okay, you want to kill the criminal? That's good. You know, you want to clean the city up? That's nice. You know, and she she says as much when she's leaving. She's like, oh, okay, that's your plan. That's nice. It's not going to work, you know. And it's the first time that you have a, a, a real look at what a person like that is really like. The thing that's always irritated me about the Bruce Wayne Batman dynamic is that you have him so uh, <laughs> you have him so separated from himself, right? He's like this kind of cartoony caricature billionaire who's this playboy and has this Rachel kind of girlfriend from the past that he never got over. So that's where his trauma comes from. Right. And, and that's what the, the, the Christian Bale movies kind of turned into is that it's the trauma of losing the girl or not being able to keep the girl because he can't keep his desires in check. You know, this desire to go out there and beat the shit out of people, basically, that becomes the driving force of Bale's Batman. Right. So the fact that, you know, I didn't even catch it until the fifth time I saw it, but like the fact that there is no Rachel. There's no Rachel, there's no door to vulnerability, there's no easy door to walk through and say, oh, okay, this is, you know, where I'm going to show my emotions. Actually, he's spending most of the movie trying to repress his emotions, which is a genius choice, which is what someone would do if they were fucking unhinged. They wouldn't want you to see that they were unhinged. They're aware and they're actively trying to get you to not see the huge elephant in the room, right? And the way they get around that in the other Batmans is there's this Rachel character. Okay, well, we all understand a man going rogue after a woman breaks his heart for some reason. We give them all the passes in the world when this happens to them. So, okay, this is why he's turned into this masked vigilante or, or in a, more precisely, why he persists in being this masked vigilante. But see, Pattinson doesn't have that. That door is never opened, it's never broached, it's just not there. So what is he? He's someone who is lacking all forms of normal human contact, and he tells you as much. 
He tells you that the reason he cannot have more human contact is because his way of mastering it is to not need it. His way of mastering it is to deprive himself completely. Okay, so now you're starting to get a much clearer picture of where this vulnerability is coming from. This is not some, uh, you know, old kind of vaudevillian display of like, this is what a superhero is. Look, I'm, I'm Iron Man. I can shoot things out of my, you know, hands and make quippy jokes at the same time and make pithy remarks. This dude has the most dialogue in a Batman suit than any Batman. And he's not even fucking talking. He's trying to do his best for you not to even hear him, really. Like, the vulnerability is played in such a different way. It's the vulnerability of someone who is severely ill, mentally ill, but wants to do good and is trapped by the motivations of his illness. So he can't get out and he knows it, but he's trying to do the best that he can with it. Because what the movie makes clear to you, especially at the end, is that he is just one hop, skip and jump from like losing his mind and just killing people. Right? He, he's going that way because, because now put it all in perspective. He doesn't have any human contact. He doesn't have any relationships. He probably never has. If his parents were killed when he was five or six and he's a recluse and he doesn't go anywhere and he doesn't have any other family and he doesn't have any other friends and he has no other contact, how do you see a girl, a guy, anything entering the picture? There isn't. There's nothing. So what's interesting to me about that is that the way the Riddler is portrayed and the way the Riddler's people are portrayed very much to me, they come across as incels, right? These are people who like they're involuntarily celibate. They just don't get the kind of attention they want. They don't have, let's say, the physical features or the financial capabilities of what makes men attractive these days, whatever you want to call it. They don't have it. And the way they dress and the way they kind of cover themselves up and they wear these kind of nerdy glasses, all of them, this is all a nod to this festering online movement that really does co-opt many different, they did a really good job with it because, you know, there's a nod there to the white supremacists, there's a nod to this whole like January 6th QAnon thing, there's a nod to uh, not just white supremacy, but this like very real population of neo-nazis that's building within the military right there's there's all kinds of there's this very obvious nod to the incel world right because you have to see it from their perspective they they don't even know what bruce really is that he's reclusive that he's fucked up that he is in so many ways just like them just like the riddler just like the other orphans that the Riddler can't see that. He can't see that they are damaged in the same ways. He thinks that they're working together. That You, you know what I mean? He, he reinterprets it in a way that his mind can handle. He thinks they're partners. It doesn't occur to him to think that they're both mentally ill in the same way. And I don't think it occurs to the audience until we start getting towards the end. And you realize when they're having that argument with each other, which I think is hilarious, I laugh. 
through that argument where he's like, I'm not helping you. I wasn't helping you. You're a fucking psychopath. You're, you're deranged. You're making this up in your head. You're, you know, and the Riddler's like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not. We're partners. We did this. We did this. Look, you did this. I did this. We're a great team. And the conversation they're actually having without realizing it is like two crazy people are talking to each other. And one's like, no, you're, you know, you're like me. <laughs> and the one that's obviously not well, you know, the one in the huge leather getup is like, no, I'm not. I'm nothing like you. <laughs> and the relatively normal looking one who's behind bars is like, no, you're exactly like me. Go look in the mirror. Right? So the mirroring in this film is, I mean, it, it starts right at the beginning. And it gives you such a gratifying feeling by the time you get to the end. When you go back and you watch it from the beginning, you realize that the first scene that you see is a boy pretending to kill his father. And as you go through the movie, the arc of the movie really becomes this realization where the way out of Bruce's grief and his inability to attach to others, right? This really, really deep attachment issue that he has in the end, he's not cured of it, but he finds a way to deal with it by demystifying the dad. You know, let's say figuratively killing that heroic idea that he had of his dad at the beginning when he realizes like what his dad, you know, actually was not the worst person, but not the angel that he thought. So if you go back to the beginning of the movie and you see the little boy pretend to kill his dad and then that little boy ends up being the boy that's like kind of the touch point for both Gordon and for uh, Batman throughout the movie. Whenever they see that little boy, they're reminded, you know, they're reminded of what they're doing it for. They're, why, why are they doing all this? There's, there's this very obvious motivation in this innocent child being robbed of something for no reason. You know, being robbed of a parent. So the, the child pretends to kill the dad, and then a few minutes later, the dad is killed, right? So every time Bruce Wayne or Batman comes across this boy, every time Gordon, Commissioner Gordon, comes across this boy, they have this like really visceral reaction to him. And you don't realize until you get towards the end of the film that you're talking about three orphans, right? You're triangulated between these three orphans and how they have and are continuing to deal with not having anyone to care for them. You know, there are misconceptions in both their minds that are relieved. Bruce Wayne is sitting in his tower of solitude. Really, he is kind of looking down on people. He is kind of, without realizing it. It's only when he has that conversation with Riddler that it, that it becomes clear to him the perspective from which others see him on the outside. He's never had that perspective. He's been so locked into his own grief, into his own pain, into this you know, uh, prison of, of, of loneliness and solitude because it's the only thing he can think of to not get hurt again, right? He doesn't see what others see. Just like the Riddler can't see what others see. The lack of self-awareness, right? But the kid, the kid sees everything. The kid knows everything. The kid, even to me, is kind of looking at Bruce Wayne in the church like, wait a minute, weren't you just looking at me two days ago? The same way in a black leather getup? 
Like the kid sees, the kid knows, the kid seems to always become the target. The car comes careening towards the kid. Bruce has to run and save the kid. Bruce, not Batman. You know, they're like these things matter. These things, the reason that movie is so fulfilling and satisfying is because you are making connections subconsciously that you don't even like you're not consciously aware of what's happening. But there's all these mm, all these connections being made, all these, you know, sentences being punctuated. There's and and you you know it even when you don't know it. Right? So Bruce isn't just saving that little kid. <clears throat> Right? So an orphan isn't saving another orphan from another orphan. <laughs> right? He's saving himself. He's saving himself. He's been trying to save himself forever. And he can't. And interestingly, as soon as he comes up against people who want to help him save himself, his reaction is to revert even more fully into this defense mechanism that he's created. I mean, he has the perfect out at the end of the movie. He has the perfect out. She's right. Everything she says is right. Things are not going to change. They're just going to get worse. Nothing will ever change. It will always be like this, and they're going to end up killing you. You know, it's like, in a way, like, I laughed because in a way it was very close to the conversation I had in Atlanta when people started talking about the Ukraine, they were like, oh, I just really love this guy so much. I'm so inspired by him. He's such a great politician. And I was like, they're going to shoot him in the head. <laughs> and everyone at the dinner table just looked at me like, what? and I was like, they're going to shoot him in the head. They're going to kill him. You know, like, like <laughs> there is a place for this kind of like overblown philosophical view of like politics and interventionist wars and all the shit that goes on geopolitically in our world, there is a way to look at it from this like kind of highbrow position and say like, oh, this is very inspiring. Yes, I get that. And it's very easy to do that. Very easy when you don't come from a culture, a country, a religion, a region that has been absolutely ravaged by war. You lose the luxury of making war into this grand philosophical statement or this existential commentary on the world, society, bravery, you know, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a nationalist, all these things, they're only possible. These thoughts hold any weight at all, if they do, in the context of this bubble. In that bubble, you can talk about you know, when there's a Starbucks down the street and your lights are on and the heat is paid for and you have a relatively, like, you have a job that can support these things, like, you're not, you, you, you are in a bubble, even if you don't feel like you're in one, you know, even if you feel like you're struggling day to day, even if <laughs> you're just not getting off your ass and working, uh, what's wrong with you, uh, even if you feel like you're being completely squeezed by the system, you're still in a bubble. You're still in a bubble because you're not showing passports at checkpoints. You're not getting accosted and sexually molested at checkpoints. You're not having the place where you live be bisected and cut in half by a wall. Right? You can travel freely for the most part. 
you don't live under an apartheid system, but you also don't live under a system where your government can't protect you from planes flying over and bombing the shit out of you. Like you just don't, you don't have the luxuries outside of the bubble to think of war in these lofty terms, in these philosophical prosaic terms. You don't. When you're not in the bubble, war is simply dust and rubble and blood. It's a lot of destroyed infrastructure and a lot of destroyed lives as this person or that person takes their last breath and, you know, drains out of their last blood and goes with them maybe hundreds and thousands of years of genetics, of family, of tradition that will never exist again because somewhere sitting you know, 30,000 miles away, somebody pressed the button. And the fact that we have no value for those people and those families and those lives and that heritage and that culture that's been destroyed systemically, yeah? Because we have no value for it, it just continues happening. There are no clever French films made about the death of a dynasty in Syria or the death of a local business in Baghdad. It's not that we don't have these stories. It's not that we couldn't wear cute sweaters and stylish flats. It's not that you couldn't make these films about us. It's not like a camera crew couldn't go to Buckson right now and make a heart-wrenching documentary that would make you want to fly there tomorrow if somebody went over there and humanized them, if somebody looked at their broken shops and their broken homes as the breaking of time and not just more dust and rubble and blood. That's what gets me. It's the value of the context. There's so much value when you per- put a person in the context of a French countryside or an English city or a Roman hostel, I don't know. Something happens to that person and you think, oh no, not them. This is a nice place with nice people. Nice things happen here. This should never have happened. You know, I don't even know what the fallout would be if tomorrow some nice Parisian lady walked out of her flat and found a pile of cut-off feet in the middle of the road. I don't know what kind of story you could write about that. I don't know what would happen globally if upon further investigation it was found out that those cut-off feet belonged to members of her family. I can imagine there would be, I don't know, at least seven to ten films made about it. I would imagine that there would be quite some literature written about it. Quite a lot of social commentary, I suppose. A lot of therapy questions, I guess. But 
Do you remember that movie where uh, Casey Affleck plays the veteran? And they can't figure out through the whole movie what the fuck is wrong with him. And then he finally just comes out and says it. Right? Like, what do you want me to do? You want me to go back to being normal? You want me to act like this shit didn't happen to me? You want, you want me to act like one day I wasn't just driving around with my comrades in a tank. And the next minute... They were all being blown to bits. You want me to act like I wasn't driving in the middle of the road and just came across an entire pile of feet and hands? You want me to pretend like you do in your bubble that everything is okay? See, the vets the vets have been outside the bubble. The vets know that there's no glory in war. There's no glory in death. There's no glory in killing they know that it's just dust and rubble and blood they know it doesn't mean a fucking thing but then we ask them to come back and readjust to the bubble and they fucking can't because everything within the bubble is fucking offensive to them the way we think the way we talk the things we pay attention to How upset do you think the families of the soldiers that are going to have to engage in this war that we're starting, how upset do you think their families are when they turn on the TV or turn on the news or they turn on, you know, they click on YouTube and what are we talking about? We're talking about branding, tattoos, people's marital drama. How do you think those families feel? (coughs) Whose boys are going to have to go to war? Whose boys have probably already been to war? Whose boys have probably just come back from war? How do you think it feels for all the people, whether it's because they're Muslim or Arab or South Asian or the family of veterans or veteran themselves? Or how do you think it feels to look from the outside into this bubble and hear y'all talking about how glorious war is, about how righteous killing can be. How do you think it lands in our ears? For some of us, you've spent the better part of 30 years calling us monsters. You've called us everything. We're not mothers, we're not fathers, we're not children. We're all just one multifaceted hydra monster. And you cut our heads off and we just keep growing back, right? We're an existential threat to your life, to your values, right? That's what you've been telling us. That's how you've been portraying us in every film, in every piece of literature, in every op-ed piece, in every slanted bit of fucking quote-unquote news reporting. We're the monsters, right? We're the monsters who won't lay down and let you kill us. We're the monsters who won't lay down and let you rob us. We're the monsters who won't lay down and let us let you exploit us and rape us and kill us indiscriminately. We're monsters, right? We're a faceless, nameless, inhuman thing. And we have been. We have been for so long that you've been able to justify within your bubble anything and everything that's ever happened to us. 
You don't have to care that a fucking entire cement house fell down around a three-year-old. You don't have to care because that three-year-old's not a three-year-old, stupid. That three-year-old's a fucking monster. Didn't you know? She's just going to grow up to be another fucking faceless, nameless, hijabi terrorist. You know that. Who fucking gives a shit if fucking concrete fell on her? That's the bubble. The bubble is so vicious and so consumed with itself, so full of apathy that to the outside, to be perfectly honest, it's from the outside, it's it's criminal. It's unforgivable. What are you guys doing? What are you guys talking about? Are you clamoring for war? Really? And are you doing so under the guise of flying peaceful flags? That's the worst part. If you're war- warmongering, why not just be warmongers? Just say it. You want a war, right? Okay, well, just be honest. Say you want a war. What is this that you're doing? Why do you have to maintain the moral high ground if you're the one who wants to kill? If you're the one who wants to go into yet another region and destroy it. And for those of you who keep thinking, what do you really have against Ukraine? What is your problem? I don't have anything against Ukraine. I have something against what happened in Libya. That's a very irritating part of my personality. I remember what happens before. And it gives me a pretty good fucking indication of what's going to happen next. 7,700 bombs. Or 77,000. I'm not sure. In seven months. That's what they did to Libya. Libya is a failed state. That's what I have against this whole thing. Because within the bubble, a few profile picture changes, a few well-meaning posts, a few days of outrage, a few tears here and there, and you move along. The bubble gets you, you know, the machine gets the people in the bubble to do their job. And then you forget and you go get a fucking latte and you go on with your life. But you are complicit. Because this bubble, it's voluntary. You don't have to live in there. You don't have to pretend that you don't have eyes. You don't have to pretend that you don't know what happened in Libya. You don't have to pretend you don't know what drones are doing. You don't have to pretend that you don't know right this minute that there are over 500 kamikaze drones being sent to the Ukraine by the U.S. You don't need, you don't, you don't have to be okay with that. You don't have to pretend that that's about peace. You can just be honest. But let's get back to, ha ha ha, let's get back to the Batman, drink something. I myself am having a juice. So, when you watch something from within the bubble, it is very much like a Christian Bale Batman movie. Everything is shiny and his muscles are huge and he's so big that he can't, almost can't move around. 
nobody's really afraid of him. They're just kind of baffled by the the look of it all. But you're definitely not thinking that this person is not well. If anything, he's completely in control. That's the one thing that comes across the most clearly about those films. He's completely in control. And if you were to look at war and murder and depravity from within the bubble, <coughs> that's a superhero for you. Right? Because that's how fighting crime looks in the bubble. It's all very sterile. <laughs> it's clean. You know, even when uh, Batman breaks his back and Bane fucks him up, he's still real pretty. You know, I think he wears like a dirty t-shirt for one scene. <coughs> that's the way they like, you know, Bruce Wayne has it hard right now. Bruce Wayne is going through something, damn it. But even then, even when they show you what at the time, because we didn't know any better, was like the lowest that Batman had ever gotten to, right, within himself. Even then, it's all very smooth. The trials, the tribulations, it's all, there's still this capacity, this very high self-esteem. I can do this. I'm going to do this, right? Now, the difference <laughs> with the Batman is that the insecurity is running rampant. He tells you at the end of the movie, he says, maybe this is all coming to an end. Right? That's, that's Pattinson talking, too, about his career. He says things like that all the time. Maybe it's all coming to an end. Maybe this is the last film. Maybe this is the last role. Maybe this is the end of Batman. Maybe this is... He, his insecurity is what constantly is giving you a window to this world outside the bubble. You're not watching Batman inside the privilege bubble you live in. You're watching him in the world, in the world outside of the thing that you've had created around you, in the world where things get really fucked up, people don't recover, people don't have these epiphany moments where they're healed, People don't do the right thing. People don't do the smart thing. Innocent people get killed for no fucking reason and nobody pays for it. Like, this film, this story, this performance is completely outside of all of the things that you have been taught to make you sugarcoat and, you know, euphemize. Like, there is this... um. There's a euphemism for everything with us, especially in superhero movies, right? No, no one, even though they're about death and destruction and all these things, the loss is still treated like something, you know, like this huge sacrifice. It's Christ-like. Gamora gives herself up for the soul stone and Aunt May is dead. And, you know, but, but, but that's not true, but that's not true. People die in the fucking dirt every fucking day because of other really fucked up people and nothing happens to them. And it's not this overarching heroic fucking moment. It's just fucking wanton death and destruction. Because that's actually what the fuck is going on out here. 
right? That's what I loved about the film. There is nothing in it that makes you feel better. Even when I'm, for a moment when you think, okay, maybe he's doing a little bit better. In the very next scene, you're like, no, he's definitely not doing better. He's definitely not doing better. He's actually beginning to see more and more of the reality. See, what the Riddler does is the Riddler lets Bruce in on something. Bruce prides himself for not living in the bubble. Bruce lives outside the city limits. Bruce is a fucking recluse, by definition, outside the bubble. And here comes Riddler at the end of the film, letting him know with one more pinprick, hey, buddy, you're still in the fucking bubble. Come out here. You, you think that you have it bad because you lost your parents? Okay, come out here. Right? You, you've just seen a glimpse of this disillusionment that this culture can offer, but you still have all this money to soften the blow. Come over here and see what it's like. Look at me. Look what I've had to deal with. You want, you want to get further out of that bubble? You want to get into the real world? Come follow me. And it wrecks him. Because, you know, it's so funny. It's, he's such a good actor, the guy who plays the Riddler. It's so funny where he keeps saying his name is Bruce, right? And there is this reaction happening in Pattinson where he's just so insanely uncomfortable. But he's uncomfortable because he's realizing something. He's realizing that all these years that he thought that he had it the worst and that he was never going to heal and that he's never going to get over this and he's never going to be normal and he's never going to have a life. Even then, he still was not living in the real world. He still was completely consumed with his own idea of what the world was. It's only when the Riddler's apartment, right? When he goes back and he really brings it all into focus. The first thing you realize about the Riddler's apartment is that it's a mirror of the Batcave. He's doing the same shit. They're doing the same shit. They have the same issues. It's just that one of them is completely outside of what is sacred. Right? One is completely outside of this guarded, gated community. And the other feels like an outsider, but he's not. He's not. He feels like an outsider because of what's happened to him. But when Riddler clues him in to what's actually going on out here, to what actually is possible, it's much worse than what happened to you, Bruce. That's when Batman finds his real purpose. That's when he realizes, okay, all right, now I'm going to fully enmesh myself in the reality of the world. And as soon as he does that, he realizes that his sadness, his depression, it's self-indulgent, it's wasteful, it's unnecessary. He doesn't have anything to be sad and fucking indulgent about. He's either going to fight this crime or he's not going to fight this crime because bad shit is happening every day and that's all there is to it. Bad, much worse shit has happened to much nicer people than him. And it puts it in perspective for him. It jolts him out of his self-pity. Right? So in that, there's a lot of catharsis. Because you're with him and you want him to win. But then you see this thing happen to him. And you see that he's flawed too. And you still love him. And these are not small flaws. You're dressing like a fucking vigilante. And you're running around beating the shit out of people. And for all intents and purposes, you're part of the fucking system that's creating this. 
right? So, like, there's a lot of truth to what the Riddler is throwing in his face without even realizing that he's doing it. And that's why he's even able to get through to him because he would have just been defensive otherwise if he had said, oh, well, Bruce, you don't understand, whatever. No, he did, he's, it's getting through to him because he feels in that moment that the Riddler may be the one that's sitting in jail, but it's, it's Bruce Wayne that's getting, getting caught. The bat is the one in the trap, right? And it's in those moments where he feels like he's in that trap that that reality that he has been hiding from and running from his whole life gets, you know, slaps him in the face. You think you can just fucking crawl up in a ball and die because terrible things happen to you? Much, much, much worse things happen. And no, it's not meant to diminish what you went through, but but can you open your eyes? If you really want to be out here making a difference, then your, you know, your selective sympathy and your selective attention is fucking dangerous. It's 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 frightening. That's what he was trying to get across to him. That's what he does get across to him. That's what makes finally Batman remove that guard, remove that barrier between him and other people. It's a, it's a huge thing, you know, to see at the end of the film that he's carrying the little kid. And that the kid doesn't want to let go of him. That the kid feels something for him. That the kid doesn't feel for the cops. The kid doesn't feel for the paramedics. The kid doesn't feel for the EMTs. The kid feels that way about him. Right? And again, there's this theme, children. Right? Riddler's talking about being an orphan. Bruce got fucked up when he was a kid. The kid lost his father. You know, he's only like eight or nine. Like, there is this... And then the the kid at the end that holds on to him and doesn't want to let him go. Like, he is finding through his own disillusionment, waking up from this kind of indulgent, depressive stupor that he's been in, he's finding as he's waking up from this that there are kids just like him, including the Riddler, all over the city. And nobody cares about them. And nobody is going to care. So he has a choice to make. You know, the thing the thing that really got me is that the end of the film is very much like um, the American Indian movement, what they used to talk about. You know, Amy used to talk about how warriors are warriors even in peacetime. But in peacetime, warriors are the ones that fix the old people's fences and, you know, dig out their yards and, and do the work. And do the work of maintaining and building up the infrastructure of a community and guarding it. You know, that's, that's what a true warrior is. It's not someone who just lazes around and waits for the fighting. So to become an, a, an active member of society by doing th- something as selfless, you know, as, as sacrificing yourself over and over again, to, to just stand in the way of aggression and, and keep people from it, to, to have that role expanded, into something that gives the most marginalized of us hope, right? The most marginalized people in the world, regardless of where you go, are children. Nobody gives a fuck about kids. I mean, the Riddler's right. Nobody gives a fuck about kids, especially now that they don't have any money. Then nobody cares. I mean, you can, you can tell people. 
until you're blue in the face that more than half the homeless population of America are children. But they don't care. They don't give a fuck. Right? That's why I can't take any abortion rights or non-rights or whatever. I can't take these people seriously. Because unless you have a tandem program where you're helping children get out of homeless situations and abusive homes and, you know, unless you're also doing that, you're not showing me anything that makes me think that you care about kids. Actually, all you're showing me is probably you just want people to have more kids so you can steal them and exploit them. That's what it feels like. So the most marginalized among us, the weakest, right? The one that Riddler gives you the perfect picture of how they're treated and what happens to them. That's what holds on to him at the end. Right? It's one of them. It's the weakest, the most vulnerable. That's what holds on to him in the end. That's who recognizes his strength, just like the Riddler did. You, know, you think that's a coincidence? You think it's a coincidence that the most marginalized and weakest members of society would... Visceral, have this visceral reaction and flock to someone dressed like a monster? Of course they would. Because they know what the real monsters look like. They know the real monsters aren't leather-clad psychos. They know that the real monsters wear suits and ties and sign papers that put you in foster homes where someone's going to molest you for the next 10 years. And if you say anything about it, the judge is in on it too, so they might just throw you in juvie. Right? You heard about the judge who was getting 25000 per small black child to put them away for life? Try them as adults? Ha ha! Yeah! It's not the guy in the mask and the eyeliner you gotta worry about. The kid's got it figured out. That's what that movie's about. That movie is about being vulnerable and open and fucked up enough to understand that there is something outside of your fucked upness. It's about understanding that even grief and trauma can become an indulgent and selfish fucking thing. It's about understanding that if you don't somehow transmute that trauma into something usable and something inspiring, that it will fucking kill you. She says what she says at the end because in her thinking, she's right. You're psychotic, you have a fucking death wish, and this city is going to fucking kill you. What she doesn't realize is that his life has completely changed in the last day. He went from being a masked vigilante to being a fucking hero. He doesn't want to be a hero. He never wanted to be a hero. He's not a hero. He's just a fucked up kid. But he's a hero. <laughs> but he's a hero. Because he's the... He's them. He's them all grown up. Still mad. <laughs> Still pissed. With good reason. That's why the Batman's incredible. 
because it takes you back to his to the reality this isn't a cartoon jumping around behind a mask because he has lots of money this is a kid who lost his parents and didn't have anybody or anything that could fix it. So it just didn't get fixed. And maybe you're at that point in your own life, you know? Maybe something has happened to you or pff, end of Pisces season, you're probably having some realizations about things that like, oh man, maybe that'll never happen for me. Maybe this will never happen for me. Maybe that'll never happen for me. Maybe you've reached a point like he has at the beginning of the movie where he's completely resigned himself to his fate. He's never going to have anybody. He's never going to go anywhere. He's never going to want anything. He just wants to do this. Because he's fucking depressed. Maybe you're at that point. Maybe you've decided, you know, nobody's coming to save me. Nobody's going to magically show up one day and say, wow, you've been in so much pain. That's always what the Rachel character has been for. It's a way for this big lug idiot of a man to emotionally process stuff through this girl. Rachel's only there to humanize him. But what if there isn't? anything to humanize him what if there is nobody coming what if there is no rachel that's ever going to come knock on the door and say hey bruce isn't it your birthday today what happens what happens when you even stop to think about it for a second what happens when you realize nobody's coming nobody's going to magically show up one day and say wow you're in a lot of pain let me help you. See, even, even Selena doesn't do it. She doesn't. She just wants him to run away. She doesn't want to fix him. She doesn't know how. She's not even really fucking sure what's wrong with him. But he fixes himself. He shows you. He waited all those years. Nobody came. He waited all those years. Nobody understood. He waited all those years. Nobody liked him. They hate him. They're afraid of him. He's already a recluse. He already has nobody. He's already sad all the time. And then he goes and does something, starts doing something that makes people hate him more. That makes people upset. That, that scares people. And... And even after all that, and the theatrics, and the drama, and everything, nobody comes to save him. Right? I mean, yes, she saves him temporarily in that moment where he's going to get his head, you know, blown off. But it's such a genius scene, because in the next moment, you see what happens if you save him. You're saving someone who is very close to the fucking edge. 
and you're not really saving him, you're just pulling him back from the edge for a second. But then this magical thing happens where he sees his own words repeated back to him. And in the face of that person that he almost killed in a fucking steroid rage, he sees himself. He sees the broken, neglected, battered heart of the city. He sees himself. It's his words and it's him. It's him beating the shit out of himself. And he finally understands. The reason nobody is coming to save me is because I'm fucking drowning myself. That vengeance was killing him alive. It robbed him of everything. And it almost robbed everyone around him of everything. That's how powerful destructive energy can be. That's how inspiring destructive energy can be. That's what he realizes. If I don't get better, if I don't find a way to crawl out of this hole on my own, no Rachel, no Selena, no Alfred, if I don't find a way to fucking rebrand myself right now. Then I'm just like them. And the self-awareness hits. And it sticks. When have you ever heard a superhero say, I need to become more? (sighs) When have you ever heard a superhero say, I'm sorry for what I said? When have you ever heard a superhero say you've paid enough? See, because she's a kid too. She's an orphan too. Her dad turned her into an orphan. And nobody came to save her either. But then there's this person. He can't save you, but he can keep you from falling deeper into that hole. And it's just that one minute of perspective. You don't have to pay with him. You've paid enough. What about you, Bruce? Haven't you paid enough? You beat up half the city. That's not enough. (laughs) It's just a bunch of orphans reflecting off of each other. It's a bunch of... It's the people that are discarded by society. This society that you're all so proud of. That bubble that you live in and you wave your flags. That movie is about all the people that fall through the cracks of that bubble and end up on the outside of it. They don't want to be on the outside. They just don't have anyone looking out for them. 
that's why the Batman's so compelling. Because if you've ever found yourself outside the fray, you know how cold and how lonely it is. And maybe it just makes you feel a little bit better to know that there's a cold, lonely badass like you who also lives outside the fray, who could live inside of it forever if he wanted. He would be their poster boy if he wanted. But he's seen life outside the bubble and he can't go back. So now he's up here, right? With you. With the marginalized, with the forgotten. It's kind of cool, right? Sure, it doesn't give you the hoo feeling of watching an Iron Man movie. It doesn't make you run out of the theater thinking about how Captain America and Black Widow should totally hook up. No. You walk out kind of crushed. You walk out thinking about two very, very, very lonely people who will probably be lonely forever but could have been happy together. You walk out firmly outside the bubble. And that's art. That's great fucking art. That's catharsis. That's true fucking talent. That man is a treasure. (laughs) That man is a weird, chaotic, lying, fucking, like, just rabble-rousing. Just, he's a treasure. He's a treasure as an actor. And that is something that I can really, like, honestly say... Because I'm aware of the limerence factor. And I'm also aware of how Hollywood plays that limerence factor up, actually. I'm beginning to see where they kind of do it to you. But it's so amazing to be able to see past that. And see just the sheer commitment to the work. I mean, nobody's really talking about it. But as someone who knows a lot about like physical acting in films and like stage combat and all that. Honestly, I don't understand why we're not talking about his stage acting, like his 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 combat, his stage combat because it's so realistic, it's so fluid, he's so young, his body like works perfectly, you know, like he's so physically capable. And it's weird that there's no real focus on that, you know, because we like couldn't stop telling Christian Bale how great he was in the fight scenes, but if you go and look at the fight scenes now, they look like a cartoon. They look ridiculous. He's legitimately negated everyone who played this role before him. They all look like morons. But they also don't look physically as fit. They may be bigger than him physically, but they don't look as agile. This motherfucker's all over the place. It's very, uh, it's very, very impressive to watch someone do exactly as they want. I was watching an interview with him 
with Jennifer Lopez, which was like kind of hard to watch anyway, because it's just something so disingenuous about her. I don't mind her, but like she has this like fake voice that she puts on that reminds me of like the fake voice that like our immigrant moms put on when they have to talk to white people. And it just, every time she does it, I just like, I stop listening. I'm just like, oh God, she's being an immigrant mom right now. Um, but anyway, in the interview at one point, somehow she gets to the question that everybody wants to ask him, which is how the fuck do you pick these projects? You are so chaotic. And he said, uh, he's so kind of insecure and, you know, he's got this floppy hair and he's got this kind of Hugh Grant, very charming, insecure, a blink too much British thing going on. And then for a moment it was gone for a moment. None of that was there. And he was sitting up straight and he looked right at her and he said, well, I have no idea what other people want. I have no idea what other people want to see, but I don't know exactly what I want. And they cut to her face and her face probably looked exactly like my face did in that moment. It was, I was astonished. Someone who kind of like mumbles here and there and doesn't finish his sentences and is always kind of saying something that's like truly chaotic and doesn't make a lot of sense. And then for a moment, when asked about something really important, he snapped into what he really is, which is someone who, yeah, he knows exactly what he wants. And then everything else about him made sense. All the different like idiosyncrasies, all the different, you know, ticks and stuff that he has. It's all the things that you do to soften the blow, to humanize yourself when you're actually a very self-directed very secure, calm person, you often have to mask that kind of drive and you often have to mask that kind of strength because otherwise it's too much. It's too much for people. It can be like, like two Aries, you know? Taurus is more subtle than that. They don't, their power is unquestionable, but they don't want to lord over you with it. They're a bit poetic with their strength. But when asked directly, that, that, that strength, it came right through. It pierced right through everything they were talking about. And for a moment, that interview got very real. He was like, well, I know what I want. I know exactly what I want. So I just do that. <coughs> and it was so great. It was so great to watch someone who has kind of cultivated this brand of being, you know, like, I don't know. It's just going to fly by the seat of my pants. I can't believe this keeps happening to me. I can't believe I keep being successful. To go from that, which is his like every day, to that moment, it like explained something to me about him. I was like, ah, that's what I was waiting for. I, I, I was waiting to see like what's behind this facade. Like it's very much a facade, but it's meant to make you feel comfortable. It's meant to make you feel at home. It's meant to make you, you know, not to be intimidated by his presence. So I get it. It's cultivated. It's very comforting. It's very considerate, actually. This is very like tourist behavior. But I've always kind of wondered, like, what's underneath that? Because there is this drive that he is able to inject into his characters that you don't see in him when you see him in interviews. But in that moment, you see it. In that moment, you see what the Safdie saw when they put him in Good Time. You see what they saw when they put him in, uh, even in Twilight. You see that there is this very calm, subtle, self-directed powerhouse who's going to do whatever he wants. You could tell him to do it like this. You could tell him to do it like this. You could talk until you're blue in the face. 
He's going to do whatever he wants because he knows what he wants. And that, that like, boom, as soon as he said it, it like hit me. Yeah, you can be successful in life outside of the conventional approaches to how you're supposed to live and the choices that you're supposed to make. But if you're going to go outside the fray, if you're going to live outside the bubble, if you're going to cultivate a career of living outside the bubble, then one, don't go back in the bubble for nothing, Johnny Depp, okay? And two, you better fucking know what you want. Because it's all out like Wild West out here outside the bubble. No, definitely nobody coming to save you here. If you don't know what you want. If you ain't got no money, honey, we got your disease, right? Like the jungle. If you want to live in the jungle, you better fucking figure out exactly what you want. And that's what I loved so much about that moment. There was no bullshit about him. He wasn't effusively blinking. He wasn't playing with his hair. He was like completely lucid for a minute, which is not like him. He was completely lucid for a minute. Looked her right in her eyes. I know what I want. <laughs> I was like, ah, there it is. There it is. We have a lot we can learn from Taurus. We have a lot we can learn from Aries of what not to do. We have a lot we can learn from Taurus as to what we should do. We have a lot to learn from Gemini about what we should not say. We have a lot we can learn from Cancer about what we should say. Okay? We have a lot we can learn from Leo about what we should not show. And we have a lot we can learn from Virgo about what we absolutely should be sharing with others. Okay? And it goes on and on from there. We have a lot to learn from Libra about what we should not care about so much. And we have a lot to learn from Scorpio about what we should never take for granted. We have a lot we can learn from Sag about having fun and living your life. And we have a lot to learn from Capricorn about how to still have a life after the fun ends. Aquarius teaches us that if you spread your heart too thin, you'll break. And Pisces teaches us that your heart can't be spread too thin if it's bigger than the ocean. We are just a work in progress. All of us bouncing off of each other like electrons in a vacuum changing each other, influencing each other, inspiring each other, hurting each other. We continue to live these self-directed lives completely unaware of how we're affecting everybody around us, especially in the more subtle ways. Our energy, our words, getting to them way before they ever see us. We live in a time where our energy and our influence crosses all barriers, time and space. And if you stop to look at it that way, it's just a 
network of souls all here to collectively learn from each other. Every single person, a different class, a different subject, a different school project. Every relationship, something to master, something to win or lose. Every day, just another flip of the page in this very long test or very short, depending. What art does is it gives us a window to look out of from this mundane day-to-day, from just the pedantic details of living. Art shows us that even pain can be beautiful. Art shows us that every single parcel and piece of this reality is meaningful. Nothing is for nothing. Everything means something. That's part of why the bubble's so upsetting. Because everything does mean something. But it feels like not even art can make a window in that bubble. It's like being in a casino. No doors, no windows, no clocks. You don't need art. They're going to tell you exactly what to think. You don't need catharsis. They're going to tell you exactly what to feel. You don't need news. They're going to tell you exactly who to support. And you don't need understanding for those who are different from you. You need only care and donate to those who are just like you. That's the viciousness of the bubble. It negates all human experience for the sake of security. For the sake of a security that's so false, it falls down around you all the time and you just prop it back up with a little bit of masking tape, hoping it'll stick. But it's not gonna stick. Oh no, no. It's not gonna stick anymore. You know how I know? I know because right now, everyone you know who's paid to influence you and distract you is getting paid the big bucks. And why are they getting paid the big bucks? And why are they all over TV? And why are they all over the internet? Because their job is to distract you. You are being distracted. And it is working. The difference is, in two years, you won't care that he has a fucking brand on his chest, but it will really fucking matter if Eurasia is destabilized. That's what's happening right now. If you think it's anything else, I need you to grow up. That's the only thing that's happening right now. That's it. Nothing else. These are deals. That's all. 
And within these deals, there's always going to be a poor pawn that doesn't know what the fuck is going on and is just being, you know, dragged through the mud. And that's poor Kanye, and we get it. But the rest of this is quite orchestrated. The rest of this is right out of the damn playbook. You know that, right? And this is not this is not me talking as a conservative. I've told you before, I'm left of left. I'm so far left, I'm right. This is all staged. This is all meant to capture your imagination so you don't stop to think for a second of what's actually going on. Destabilizing Russia is the biggest mistake we could make right now. Especially considering that we have generations of children who have already grown up with constant war. They've never seen a year without war. My child has never seen a year without war. How is that okay? And how do we keep convincing these kids in the bubble that they're going to be fine? What's going to happen when they wake up and realize that they're not going to be fine? What's going to happen when they wake up and realize that you posting your stupid shit on social media is part of what caused what became the fucking misery of their lives? What's going to happen when all your irresponsibility now (coughs) has to be carried by your children? Are you thinking about that or are you just thinking about how cool your profile picture looks? Because those same children that you care so much about in the movie, you know, poor Bruce, poor Selena, poor, uh, what's his name, Nash. But you know, your kids, real ones, not made up kids in a story, real children, your kids are going to have to suffer for this. Your kids are the ones who are growing up under a constant fucking cloud of war. You know what that does to you as a person? Do you realize that in the 90s we were sitting around in high schools talking about how we were the first generation who wasn't really affected by war and how great it had been for our mentality and how great it had been for our minds and how we felt unfettered because we're the generation that was born right when the Vietnam War ended. I was born in 77. The war had just ended. And for about 18 years, aside from this fucking NATO-Serbia thing that they kind of kept from us, you know, they made an Owen Wilson movie about it. That's how we knew about it. Aside from that, there was really nothing until the Oklahoma City bombing. And I've mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. As kids who had grown up inside that bubble, because that's what I'm describing, right? Marymount was a bubble. The, the bubble, if we're being honest. And that Oklahoma City bombing was like a pin. And it popped (laughs) the facade that we had been taught under and lived under and thought we would get married under and have babies under, you know, that awning, it was just ripped away. And all of a sudden there was a whole building that looked like its face had been ripped away and an entire daycare full of dead kids. And you know, it fucked us up. I know I've said this before, but think about it in the context of what I'm telling you. It fucked us up. Because the Vietnam War was over. 
and mentally we grew up in some semblance of peace. Sure, there was a lot of other fucked up things, you know, they went right to war and the black population in America would crack. You know, Vietnam ended and the crack war began, the drug war began. But being a teenager and hearing about kids being blown up, three-year-olds, five-year-olds, like, daycare, you know, they're not even old enough to go to school. (laughs) It fucked us up. It confused us. Why? Why would you do that? (laughs) Now think about kids like my son. All they know is the atrocity of war. From the time they were born. War has been raging and not just any war. No, 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 no. Wars of extreme oppression and torture and theft. Wars of exploitation and murder and robbery. They've lived under a barrage of intel leaks, wiki leaks and prison photos and torture descriptions. There are 15-year-olds who know what waterboarding is. They probably knew what it was when they were 10, even though it's not allowed by the Geneva Convention. You, You can't just be out here running metaphorically towards a battlefield with kids strapped to your back. They deserve better. They deserve for you to have a brain, to pick up a book, to read, to talk to people. They deserve to have you not go along with the group think of everything and keep trying to shove down their throats that they live in a bubble because it's fucking you that does and they absolutely fucking don't. They're already marginalized by the choices that we've made and the things that we let slide. The reason there are 15-year-olds who know what fucking waterboarding is is because when people my age were 25, we didn't fucking do anything. We didn't fucking run for government. We didn't fucking want to be legislators. We didn't fuck. We didn't want to do it. We didn't want to do it. That's why. Because we were raised, you know, wrapped in fucking cotton and crinoline. And then all of a sudden, fucking Timothy McVeigh blows up a fucking building and they ripped the entire thing away from us. And we were just like, fuck this. This sucks. This is all a fucking lie. Fuck the government. Fuck governments in general. Fuck all this. That's why this is happening to our kids. Because you had an entire generation 20 years ago who was so disillusioned when the bubble popped that they were like, okay, I'm out. (laughs) 
I, I don't want to be a part of this in any way. I don't. But what about those of you who are still in there? Still feeding this machine, still fucking feeding this beast. How are you going to look at your kids? What are you going to say to them? You, you going to tell them about what a hero Zelensky is? Can you fucking grow up? Like, how do they do it to you? What's the voodoo that they do? The voodoo that you do, that you be doing. What is the voodoo that they be doing? How do they get you to care about other people more than you care about yourself and your kids? What is the magic? Because that's what you're doing. But okay. Now let's talk about Balenciaga. Should we talk about Balenciaga? Ha 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 ha. You know, what I love most about God, there is this thing. Oh, yeah, 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 we're going all the way here. There is this thing that God says in the Quran, right? He says, if somebody wrongs you, you have every right to hit them back. No, they hate you, you hit them back. Got it. They wrong you, you want to wrong them back? Even, even, even Stephen, you got it. Do it. That's option A. Maybe you get them, maybe you don't. You tried, you know what I'm saying? Islam is all about intentionality. You tried to get them back, even if you didn't get them back, I'm gonna count it as a try. You know, you're done. Or, God says, or you can leave it to me. You can leave it to me and I can get them back for you. The difference, God would like to point out, is that See, when you do little shit in this little human world to other little humans like you, maybe you win, maybe you lose. You know, maybe you get them back, maybe you don't. Maybe you're satisfied, maybe you're not. The cool thing is, and this is God now. See, the Islam's very flexy. Islam is a very flexy religion, right? Now, the difference is, God's like, let me point out the difference. The difference is if you let me handle it, first of all, it's a guarantee. You know, we guarantee the revenge over here. One, we guarantee the karma. Two, I'm going to make sure, because I'm flexy, okay? I'm going to make sure that this person gets what they deserve in a very public way in front of everybody, in front of me and everybody else. And everybody will know when it happens that it was because of what they did to you. Including them. They'll know too. Right? God's justice is poetic. Okay? So, another thing it says in the Quran is that if you see someone who has everything and you think to yourself, this person is genuinely a fucking bad person, why do they have everything? God says, listen. I give people a lot of rope. Sometimes I give people so much rope, you would think that I was doing them a favor. You would think that I was setting them up for life. But then one day, 
I pull that rope all at once. And then you'll know that there was nothing wrong with my plan. What was wrong was that you doubted me. You didn't trust me. You saw that person getting everything they wanted. And instead of having faith that I knew what I was doing, you started thinking, hmm, maybe this system is unfair. Maybe, maybe when you saw me giving this person all this stuff, you thought to yourself, there is no justice. There is no larger design. Maybe you started to doubt. Okay? Because your understanding is so limited. You see money, you see fame, you see the material dunya, and you think, oh, God must be blessing this person. They have all the things that I don't have. They have all the things that I want. I'm a better person. I'm not doing the fuck shit this bitch is doing out here. How come... God isn't doing something about this. And God's like, bro, trust me. This is why the living word is so important. This is why reading is so important. This is why books are the most important thing in the world. Because you have to read to know these things. The living word, it stays with you. Think about this now. You may think that the things that I've given to someone, the boons, the, 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 the blessings, the things that you in your eyes think are blessings, you may think that I've given them those things as blessings. Not ever stopping to think that I was setting them up to pull that rope all at once. Ooh. And let me tell you, as someone who has seen God work in their life, when I tell you God pulls that rope, oh boy, I mean, that rope is merciless. That, that, that revenge is the kind of revenge where you're like, okay, God, maybe you want to go easy on him. Like, you know, you know, like where you're like, oh, you know, I shouldn't have messed with the big man. Like nobody told you to fuck with God. You know what I mean? Like you still, you start feeling bad for the person like that. Like, let me tell you, I'm like a living testament to that shit. That shit is very real. But it requires a lot of fucking patience. And it requires a lot of faith. But it's not a mystery. Like, when it happens, when you see the rope get pulled, it, remember, God tells you, I'm going to make it public. I'm going to make it so that everybody involved knows, oh, this is the payback. It's not like something subtle that happens in a corner over there that you don't know about. No, no, no. This is like right in your face. Okay, so let's talk about Balenciaga. <laughs> yes. Yo, Alexa Demi. <laughs> How does it feel to be <coughs> a physical product? How does it feel to be treated like a physical product? How does it feel to get wrapped up like a physical product? How does it feel to be referred to in the zeitgeist as a physical product? How does it feel to go and sit next to an artist? Bitch, let me say it again. 
How does it feel to go and sit next to a motherfucking artist? Hmm? How does it feel to have every inch of your body tailored, nipped, tucked, sprayed, stretched, lasered, lifted, clarified? How does it feel? To look like every doll that every man in the whole world would want to fuck. And then have to go sit down next to a bitch that ain't done shit to her little 5'2 frame is wearing baggy leather pants, a baggy black shirt over her shoulder with no hair, with a pixie haircut. Ha 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 ha! does it feel i know how it feels because i saw the video in the video it looks like a worm on a hook apparently that's how it feels to sit next to a fucking artist especially an artist who underneath those very very chic very very baggy clothes has a fucking killer body but it's a real body it's just a normal body it's the girl walking down the street that just got out of class. It's a normal body. It's a nice-ass body. Don't get me wrong. Marshall, a beautiful body. But it's a body. Like a real body, you know? If this bitch showed up at, like, your, your cousin's birthday party, you'd be like, oh, she's nice. Damn, she's really pretty. Right? If, if, if the product walked through the door, you'd be like, whoa. Wow, is a... Okay, you know, right? Okay, so how come, how come if that's the reaction that would happen at a birthday party, that's not generally the reaction that happens in that bubble, right? But Alexa Demi is the fucking safety pin, bitch. You can't be in your little fucking bubble around this bitch because this bitch is too real. This bitch is not going to wear what you want her to wear. She's not going to use social media the way you want her to use it. She's not going to do the shit to her face that you want her to do. You know every fucking bitch in the world wants her to get under eye filler. You know they do. This bitch ain't going to do it. I know exactly what type of bitch this is. I know Latina girls like this. The Latina girls that are born beautiful from the second they come out of the womb, you can't tell them nothing. And their mom, their dad, and everyone around them has told them their whole life that they're fucking stunning because it's fucking true. And they just know it, and it's like they know it like they breathe. And it's just, it is what it is. Like, you try to say anything to them about anything, and they're just going to look at you like you're fucking insane. Because, like, what language are you even fucking speaking? Because I am fucking bad. And I've been fucking bad since the moment I was fucking born. My mom is badder than you, okay? My mom's twice your age and badder. Like, don't, don't even come over here with this. You're dealing with that. You're not dealing with somebody who's, like, insecure from jump. Right? And a bunch of fucking crazy weird shit happening around you at the house. And a bunch of crazy weird shit that your parents are doing. Like, what kind of mentality you grew up with with both your parents are getting facelifts and nose jobs and all this shit, like, on the regular. Like, every three, four years, your, your, your parents are getting plastic surgery. Like, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand the difference in cultural upbringing? Like, there's a lot that went into that moment. And by the way, they had to move her. For some reason, after that moment on video where you see Demi sitting there like a fucking leopard, like a fucking predator, like, like she, like, please, 
the next moment, she's sitting next to Anna Wintour, and she's not sitting there with her anymore, with Kim anymore. Hmm. You know what that was? That was an actual physical video of watching the fucking bubble burst. Because the thing is, you don't realize how, how deluded things are in the capital. Okay? May the odds be ever in your favor. You don't realize how fucking delusional the people in the capital are until you see them up against somebody from the real world. That's what I mean about this bitch being a fucking safety pin. She's the fucking sharpest fucking safety pin in the fucking bunch. You can't live in your bubble where that fucking ridiculous outfit might have been cool when you're sitting next to somebody from the fucking real world who's coming in from like fucking District 9 and just happens just by luck, bitch, just happens to be drop dead gorgeous. What are you supposed to do? See, because I know the difference between these two types of confidence. As someone, again, as someone who has been married to models, male models are born male models. Let's be fucking clear. Actors, male actors and male models are born fucking male models and actors. Because there's not a lot you can do with men to make them better looking with plastic surgery. Unless you want to, you know, go the Jared route. You could go the Jared route, but why did you get the plastic surgery if you're going to wear fake prosthetic noses like your nose used to be for the rest of your life? Sorry. I'm going to stop talking about him at one point, but not anytime soon. Because like now he's doing this WeWork thing, which is actually genius. It works perfectly for him. Finally, he picked something that's close enough to his own personality of being a fucking total douchebag that he can like really play it. But then the nose thing. Why do you continue to wear prosthetic nose? Why did you get the nose job then? Like on men, it's just like, I'm sorry. The plastic surgery, like yes, on women and women can become like from nothing to like superstars overnight if they get the nose done. I get it. But for men, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work the same way. These men have to be born beautiful. They got to be beautiful right out the fucking womb. Okay. When you have that energy, whether you're a man or a woman, when you're born beautiful, you're very easy to spot because your confidence is completely different, right? So most of us, including myself, we built our confidence over time. We were put in situations where we had to either excel mentally or physically. As we entered puberty, it became more about excelling in terms of attention and you know finding a mate or you know the, the, the most suitable mate. And so we keep doing this thing where we give and take with people, right? And we build our confidence or we lessen our confidence. This is this constant like seesaw, right? And somewhere in there, we find a baseline and we think, okay, like this is who we are. And I guess this is my attraction level. And this is my, you know, this is what I can pull or however you say it. And, and you either do things from that point to improve your chances or not. Or maybe you go the complete other way and say, fuck men and fuck women and fuck them. And I'm just going to focus on work and that becomes your identity and that's where you draw your confidence and your capability is from, you know, being able to make money and being successful. Some people, other people like myself, who didn't have that option and didn't have the option of being born conventionally beautiful, I fell somewhere in the middle where, you know, it was either sink or swim. My brother, my older brother, Marshall, was born beautiful. So I saw it in my family. I saw the difference in what life was like for him and what life was like for me. I didn't resent him for it, but I didn't notice, Right? So I had to find a different way. I knew that he had that lifeboat. I saw him floating around in that raft all the time, kind of in this rarefied air above everybody else, right? 
I knew I didn't have that. It was painfully obvious. But I also knew that there were different versions of that raft and that you could find one. So like I said, some people find their capability and high self-esteem and, and that feeling in themselves, that confidence through making money or being good business people or, you know, whatever it is. I found it through being smart. I found it through knowing stuff. I found it through getting good grades. I found it through being able to extrapolate from the information I already had on hand to come up with something new. I found that my mind was the source of my confidence, right? So depending on how you first built that true foundation, that rock solid foundation of your self-esteem, if you built one, when someone touches that area of your life, you don't respond, you don't react. It's like a very small dog barking at a husky. Huskies don't even notice them. They really don't even react. Sometimes, most of the time, huskies don't even look at them. They'll just like not acknowledge them because you're being stupid, you know? So whatever that foundational rock of confidence that you have, like for example, for my mother, who was an orphan, um, it was religion. She just, you know, she just really, really loves God. Like she just, she didn't have anything else. And I think that she found really early this quote, this Islamic quote, you know, that if you have nobody but Allah, then you have everything you need. And that is a very common saying, especially among orphans. Um, and, and God does go out of his way in the Quran to really point out that orphans are, should be the most protected class and should be the most looked after. So she built her foundation on religion. Now, I built mine on my intelligence. And, and so there's, there's other ways that, you know, people have done this. But what I'm trying to get to is that when you see someone come towards that foundational confidence you have, when you see someone broach that subject, you're like the husky in the dog park who's not responding. It, it doesn't trigger anything in you. Like someone could stand in front of me for hours and just be like, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, everything you say is wrong. And I would just be like, your grammar is off. You know, you're not punctuating. You're not making any new points. At this point, this is just fatigue. Like, maybe you should tell me what the point of this is and I could rework this for you in a way that would be effective, you know? No, seriously. Maybe if we rework, like, tell me what your motivation is. Is this about torture? Is this about, you know, do you want to break me mentally? Let's get to what the objective is and then let's work backwards, right? And kind of like retrofit this thing and figure out what you should be saying that would actually have an effect because the things you're saying are not having an effect. That's what would happen. Why? Because you're attacking me in an area of my life where I just don't have any fucking holes. I don't have any insecurities about this, bitch. You can tell me until you're fucking blue in the face and drop dead that you think I'm stupid. I'm still smarter than you. <laughs> and you can't tell me any different. Because if you really want to get into a conversation about who's smarter than who, then you're going to get into a real conversation with me instead of just trying to insult me. And if you get into a real conversation with me, you're going to lose. You see? That's real confidence. That's knowing. So, different people have that you know, baseline confidence in different things. Now, if somebody came up to me and was like, oh, you know, you really should get a nose job, I'd be like, oh my God, right? (laughs) 
and I would start crying and I would be why why because you're bumping into something that bitch the foundation ain't all that solid you understand what I'm saying I'd be like, oh my god, you want to come with me? We could go see Vanessa together. Like, maybe she could put filler in the bridge of my nose. Like, I would be all with you. I would. But, but do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? One area of my life, you can't tell me shit. I don't, like, you have, there's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can say, you could do, you could show me that's going to make me think that I'm stupid. You're not going to do it. Sorry. Mashallah, mashallah, this is not me. This is God, right? Like, it's not me. I'm not taking credit. I'm just saying, I know what I know. Sorry. But the areas of my life where I am not so solid, I mean, let's be honest. Maybe you wouldn't even have to say anything to me. Maybe you just, like, look at me weird. And I'd be like, oh, my God, they think that I need to get work. You know, maybe, maybe. I would like to think that I'm getting better. But I'm saying, like, everybody has shit, you know? Like, I'm not going to pretend I'm fucking perfect or I think everything about me is fucking perfect. Like, I have insecurities and I have places where I have no insecurities, just like everybody else. And that's the fucking point. The point is that fucking Alexa Demi is a little Deepu, my older brother. That's his nickname, Deepu. He's, she's a little Deepu running around. I know that shit. She's a Jared. She's a Jared Leto. But you see how good you could do it? You see if Jared just turned down the douchebag quality, how he could be fucking killing it right now. He could be on Euphoria. You know that, right? You know that Jared Leto could be on Euphoria. You know he could. He could be a drug dealer. He could be somebody's really um, liberal dad. He could be a gay school teacher. He could, like, he could do it if he wasn't a douche. And didn't insist on making everything the Jared show. He's got that Alexa Demi quality. He's got that Deepu quality. I told you, they're born on the same day. He's He's got it. He could do it. She does it. My brother does it. Brad used to do it. Like, people who are born good looking. That don't need a fucking thing. They, be, they, they do this. They live on that raft. You can't, you know, you tell them something and they're just like, what? <laughs> I would love to see somebody try to tell that bitch she needs a nose job. She'd be like, are you on crack? Or like, did you hit your head? <laughs> like, bitch, you can't tell me a fucking thing. Oh, no, no. I've had this face my whole life. I know what I have. And you're going to sit that beast, that fucking predator... You're going to sit her next to somebody whose entire family is fucking racked with insecurity from the parents on down. And then you're just going to let her eat her alive and you put her in the in the packaging. You wrapped her up in the packaging like a product and then you sat her next to a muse. A muse that has the entire world enamored with her. A woman that is changing the way that bitches half her age do their makeup? A woman who has, for all intents and purposes, introduced this strong female archetype to 11, 12-year-olds who have been living off of this influencer hell for the past five years? You're going to sit her next to that? Well, that just seems mean. And then you're going to sit her next to her and then, and then this 
nonverbal interaction takes place. A deeply insecure person is placed next to a deeply secure person. Fight. And all you see is a worm squirming on a hook. So you see all the trolling and all the videos and all the photos and all the tattoos and all the brands and all the bullshit. It all makes sense in the bubble. It may even seem like the most important thing. But as soon as you see somebody who looks like you, who could be your friend, who's just out here living, who has the body to be wearing next to nothing but is completely covered up, who's chicer than everybody there, even though she's like supposed to be all the things that are not chic. When you see that life outside the bubble is so much more fucking dope than what the fuck is going on in the capital, you can't unsee it. It's too inspiring. Couple that with the newest fucking trailers from Hulu. You're sitting next to Alexa Demi and she's eating you for fucking breakfast. And then there's Hulu promo shots of y'all being like, we don't dance, we don't sing, we don't act. We're just successful. Get over it. That's not something to be proud of. And it's also not something to look down at other people for. People don't sing and act and dance because they want to be rich. <laughs> what is wrong with y'all? People don't go to restaurants, as Banksy says. To, people don't go to restaurants because they want to take a shit. People don't act and dance and sing and these things that you're making sound like labor <laughs> because they want to be rich they do them because they can't help it because when you're a creative person everything you do is fucking art and art will make you rich if you keep at it it's one thing to admit that you don't do anything and you just sell product. There's nothing wrong with selling product. McDonald's sells product. You know what I'm saying? CVS sells product. There's nothing wrong with being a company that sells product. But I don't see McDonald's out here, you know, in the media talking about, you know, all we sell is burgers and we fucking made it. You chumps out here doing charity work. You chumps out here making vegan food. You chumps out here making fucking desi food. You guys are idiots. We didn't have to do any of that. We just sell burgers and we fucking made it. No, bro. Just be quiet and sell your product and just make your money. Like, hey, yo, nobody's mad at McDonald's. You know what I mean? Like, nobody's mad at you for... Being a product, making a product, selling a product. Nobody's mad. This is the American way, man. We all love a fucking good product. I'm the first one to be like, some of the skim shit is dope. I stopped buying it just because the quality fell off. And I was just like, after I saw the price gouging, like if you're making the piece for $4 and you're selling it for like $140, 
really care if the product quality was okay, but like it just put a bad taste in my mouth. But like, but it's a product, no problem. People have ups and downs with products. Some of the products are great, some of them not so much. Just like every other company, no problem. That's not it. It's the completely unnecessary and uninvited condescension, virtue signaling, judgment. Like, we don't have to do anything inspired. We can just move product, get over it. How is that something to be proud of? How is that something that someone would even say out loud? No, you you should want to be inspired. You should want to create things. You should want, like, and, 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 and if you don't, that's okay. But when did that become something to flex about? When did that become a bragging right? That's not a bragging right. That's fucking embarrassing. That's what gets you sitting next to Alexa Demi squirming like a fish, like a fucking worm on a hook. Because you're sitting next to someone who fucking lives and breathes fucking creativity. And this bitch is consistent. She's been doing this long before fucking euphoria. Like, it's just an amazing moment. It's amazing to see our reality, which is nuanced and which does have a lot of beauty and art in it, as do we all. It's nice to see that world bump up against what is, for all intents and purposes, a, a corporation. It's nice to see flesh and blood bump up against packaging and to see that as a collective, what we are and what we represent, it still wins. It still holds more weight because it's real, because you can sink your teeth into it and you know it'll taste like something, right? Something salty, something bloody, something real. Not something sterile, not something packaged. It's nice to have those moments where you can feel that confirmation of self. Because we spend so much time, see there are bubbles within the bubbles. We spend so much time in our own bubble, but within that bubble we spend so much time peering into yet another bubble that's much more exclusive. And that one we can't get into, but we can peer into. And unfortunately, we live, we live our lives mimicking and mirroring what we peer in and see in that even more exclusive bubble. So the joy that you feel when you peer into that even more exclusive world and you see one of your own, someone who has not done any of the things that you're supposed to do to be let into the club, and you see her sitting there in the club, front row, emperor style, holding court. Nobody can fucking touch her. Arguably the most famous woman in the world, squirming like a worm. Yeah. It feels fucking fantastic. Because it gives you some fucking perspective. See, all this shit is fun and games to us if you're older. If you're like 35 and older, this is all kind of just like, okay. Because we're about the same age as them. So it doesn't really, but what about these little girls? What about these little girls who've grown up in a world where they've never seen these women have any other body than the body they have now? What about the little girls who are growing up thinking that like BBLs are just like what bodies look like? What about the, is it, do you, don't you think it's 
somewhat necessary and reconfirming, right? Affirming for them to see a nice, beautiful, pretty, normal girl crushing everything around her with just her fucking natural confidence. See, in a world where you can buy every fucking thing, in a world where you can look exactly the way you want to look, in a world where you can trick everyone to not have to do any of it and just be that fly, we love to see it. We love to fucking see it. We love to see a fucking moment of authenticity. Someone out here who is just like, yeah, no. We're still here. And we're okay. And we're bad as fuck. It's important. And if you go back to what I was saying about the rope being pulled, well, you have to put it in perspective. See, to you or me, that's just a moment at a fashion show within the industry that's their spokesperson that they dressed very badly that they made a huge mistake with and not only did they dress her in a way that was not appropriate they should never have done that to her it wasn't nice you know what i mean it wasn't a nice thing to do and she seems like for the most part aside from the weird comments about being lazy which are just so mean and weird and out of character it just seems really odd she does seem like a nice person and someone who actually is a bit of a pushover and goes along with too many things and it seemed like a really mean thing to do to her to put her in all that tape and make her look ridiculous that was not there was no loving intention behind that even once she had it all on when they saw that how it was making her walk they could have just taken it off there was a million things they could have fit her in you know what i mean They didn't have to do that to her. It was mean. And then to purposefully sit her next to somebody who has the complete opposite uh, effect on the world. Also, not very nice. But if you look at it from a corporate standpoint and not from all the way out here where we are, um, there were some missteps. There were some big missteps. And unfortunately, I think those missteps are happening because there was a ferocity to Kanye when it came to protecting her image. And there was a a knowing with him. He knew that she's a pushover and that she's too nice. And he doesn't mind being the bad guy and he's never going to be too nice. And so in a lot of ways, I think he protected her from exactly these kind of faux pas moments where she's trusting a designer because they're the designer and you should be able to trust them. But Kanye is smart enough to know that designers, like doctors, like anybody else, sometimes they don't know what the fuck they're doing. And you have to trust your own gut and you have to trust your own taste. Um, And she doesn't really have that because she has been groomed so very much to be a product. So she is like a really hard worker in that way. She will just like go with it and do what needs to be done. And Kanye obviously uh, won't. So it's a tiny little example but it isn't really because it's indicative remember how i'm annoying with that it's it's indicative of something much deeper you've lost something that was integral to your brand there's a there's a credibility that kanye's 
originality and his ferocity to, you know, his own vision brings. And that credibility is something that's built over time. And it's also something that disintegrates over time. So with every misstep away from that kind of guarding of the image and careful curation of the brand, you are going to misstep. And with every misstep, you lose a little bit, right? You're cannibalizing your brand in a way by letting um, these designers do things that are more maybe for shock value for them, but not at all nice to you. You know, if it's not making your body look nice and you can't walk in it and it's making you look like a joke, like, why didn't they tell you? Why didn't they take it off you? That's not nice. That seems mean-spirited, actually. Right? But these are the things that, like, a Gemini is going to pick up and a Libra is just going to be like, no, of course they weren't being like that. Yeah, they, they were. They definitely were. There was no fucking reason to sit you next to Alexa Demian. That's definitely not in that outfit. That was just a mean thing to do. So, it's, it's sad, you know, it's sad because if you go back and just listen to like, I don't know, six pods ago, I was talking about how like I was starting to really like her and she's making these like really classy moves, you know, and handling the divorce really well and taking care of her kids and moving on with the law career and moving on with, you know, and then there was talk that she was going to like date Van Jones and, you know, she, she was on her way to becoming what seemed like a bit of like a political powerhouse. You know, she could have made some strong moves. She could have started dating somebody in DC. She could have started spending time in DC. There were very big doors that could have opened. And I was really excited about it. Because who doesn't like a comeback? You know, like a true comeback. Who, does, who doesn't like the idea of a pretty girl who everyone has written off turning out to be like this fucking badass and like a real smart and, you know, good at her job and, and like making a difference and feeling fucking great about herself. Like, of course we want to see that. Nobody begrudges her happiness in a life. Of course we want her to be happy. We like the the truth of the matter is like we've all grown up watching her try to like make it we want her to make it and I think that was the part that was the most like felt like the most betrayal like you're the one who fucked up and we all still rooted for you and we've been here and we've been rooting for you and now all of a sudden we're lazy and we don't want to work hard enough I mean we're the ones that were nice enough not to judge you for making enough laying on your back and you get to the top of the heap and now you're looking down on us. We're the ones who didn't look down on you when you were at the bottom. Literally. That's what hurts. That we wanted her to make it. We supported her making it. We were proud of her when she was making it. And we were kind of crestfallen and heartbroken when she started to, you know, melt down. And then it's our fault. <laughs> We're just, we just don't want to get our fucking asses up. Really? When rents are doubling? Okay. Okay, because I thought, you know, the, the way that the people out here feel is like, I thought we were friends. We've been rooting for you. 
What the fuck are you doing? What are you talking about? But, like I said, that rope, when it's pulled, I mean, (laughs) it gets pulled. And it gets pulled in a way that may seem subtle at first. But it's like a bullet in the heart. It stays and festers. It's the beginning. It's the emperor has no clothes moment. Every icon that outlives their welcome has it. It's that moment where people wake up from the dream and go, wait a minute. It's true. There are all these people out here who can sing, who can dance, who can act, who are real fucking good at it, actually, who make me feel something. I watch their performances and I listen to their songs and I feel something. It affects me. It changes me. It makes me different. It doesn't make me run out and want to change a bunch of shit about myself. It makes me weep with joy and cry in anger. It makes me want to grab Tom Holland by the hand and hug him really tight because he just doesn't understand that Aunt May is dead. It makes you want to wrap Maddie up in a blanket when Nate almost chokes her to death. It makes you want to kiss Robert Pattinson on a roof because he's, he's probably never been kissed before. That singing and dancing and acting? You mean life? (laughs) You mean life? You mean the reason we're here? You mean, you mean everything important? (laughs) Think about your life. Think about all the things you know. Think about the fact that every fucking Greek hospital had a theater next to it. Think about what we're doing here and how this simulation and how this test works. What you're saying is that you're not actively taking part in any meaningful way in this simulation and that you're proud of it. And that's fucking gross. It's gross only because you choose to diminish it. You don't need to do all those things to make money. You can make money anyway. Nobody is banging on the door talking about, Cassie, open the fucking door. How could you do this to me? You're my best friend. Nobody's doing that for money. Yeah, there's money involved. You're damn fucking right. There better be a lot of fucking money involved. But it's not for money.
I'm sure Robert Pattinson never needs to work again. He didn't make good time for money. You don't... You don't engage your soul in the active process of creating art and instigating catharsis in others for money. You can't even do it like that. The money is a fucking byproduct, not the fucking goal, bro. The goal is fulfillment. The goal is purpose. The goal is to add something real, not packaging. It's not to take, it's to give. You know what acting and singing and dancing is? It's giving. That's what got me. That's what got me. That you just take and take and take and take and then you say, and then you say, you fucking assholes are fucking lazy. But what have you given? That, that's what pissed me off. And in comparison, there's this little fucking girl sitting next to you who has given so much to so many fucking little girls out here who for one reason or another, they're too much. They're too much for their class. They're too much for their... I know. I was there. I've been there. She's given an entire generation of girls... A little bit of fucking steel in their fucking spine. Do you think that's quantifiable? You think you can put a number on it? Because I bet you whatever the fuck that girl is making for Euphoria doesn't even fucking come close. The money is a byproduct. The goal is to give. Not fucking take. And I'm sorry if I sound annoyed, but like, why isn't this fucking common knowledge? Why is this something that like, is you're bereft of? Why don't you know this? You know, we can have these kind of highbrow conversations about art and we can talk about things like, Robert Pattinson's nuanced performance and his reimagining of a superhero. We can do all these things. Because there are people out there willing to give. Because there are people out there who won't phone it in. Because there are people out there who are giving and creating because it's the only reason they're here. That's why we can live in this beautiful space 
where we can explore our emotions and our minds. Because some artist has the fucking guts to hold that fucking door open at their own fucking expense. To give you a glimpse. They worked on that movie for a year. What the fuck? A year? That's a long fucking time. You don't just get to have those moments. You don't just pay for a ticket and are entitled to those moments. No, some person, some artist out there has to bleed for that. That's why we have this fucking sublime culture of art and exploration and introspection that's why we keep getting smarter that's why we keep evolving because there are people fucking selfless enough and so fucking beholden to their craft that they can't help but give above and beyond what they should so you will feel something You think that he's fucking making these movies because he wants you to think he's hot? He knows he's fucking hot. He's a fucking Taurus. You think he's making these movies because he wants people to pay attention to him? He's one of the most recognizable faces in the world. He spends most of his days by himself alone. (laughs) You think he's doing it because he needs money? He made so much fucking money off of Twilight. He never needs to work again. You think, like, what could it be? It's not the fame, it's not the money, it's not the looks, it's not the, you know, it's not the affirmation. He has the whole world telling him all the time that he's a genius, it's not that either. So what's it for? I mean, by this logic, if you don't need to dance or act or sing or do anything, you could just make money, then why would someone do all this? If he could just sit back and make this money, why would he do all this? Why would he kick his own ass for a year and have this grueling shooting schedule and this grueling working out schedule and this grueling stunt schedule just for what? Why? Why give so much? Why work so hard? You got the money, you got the fame, you got the affirmation, you got the bitches, you got the dudes even, you got whatever you want. Why? Obviously, you can't fucking help it. Obviously, you're addicted to the craft, to the art, your own and others and everything in between. Obviously, you're here to create well. And everything else is a fucking byproduct. We have the luxury of being able to explore ourselves the way we do because people like that exist and people like us exist. And every day we wake up and we create something or we work towards something and we give. Whether it's the way you did your makeup today or the way you picked out your outfit, whatever whatever you did. If you did it with that creative eye, if your soul was in charge of that endeavor, you brought something creative into the world. And how the fuck do you know who you affected with it? But you did your part. 
we hold the sky up together, you know? But it hurts a lot when you and your homies are holding the sky up together, putting pins in it constantly, and someone keeps coming by and taking the pins out. And all they do is take, 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 take. And one day when the sky is falling down all around you and you and your homies just can't hold it up anymore because for some reason all the fucking pins are gone. The people that took all the pins are going to come by and say, man, look what a fucking mess you guys made. What the fuck were you guys doing over here? This is disgusting. You guys are gross. You guys are so fucking lazy. How could you let this happen? And then out of that falling sky, crushing realization that what you've supported and what maybe you even hoped you would be like one day turned out to be so wrong. Right when that realization is washing over you and you're thinking to yourself, how the fuck have I been thinking for the past decade? Right then, here comes this fucking vampire weirdo. This fucking chaotic, lying, bizarre Brit. And he's like, yeah, you just waking up to the fact that everything is a lie? Me too. You waking up to the fact that your idols are all fucking false and crooked? Me too. But hey, we're broken, but we have each other. We can get better. We can be more. The most wonderful thing about Joyce's work is that disillusionment is never the end. Joycean literature has this ability to make you feel like waking up from your fantasies is the best thing that can happen to you even though if it even though it takes you to the brink of dying. Disillusionment is terribly painful and we don't always react to it positively or productively. But to have a few examples around of how it can be done and the emotional honesty that's needed to do them is inspiring. It keeps you on the right road, keeps you honest. True art will always do that. It will reel you back in from the bullshit. It will reel you back in out of the bubble. It'll remind you of how fucking real life is. Ironically. And for that, we can only be grateful. Hmm. All right, it's your girl, DJ Nark. I'll see you in a week.